Hey everyone, Fraser here. Uh, so this is a podcast interview that I did with the Big Beard Theory, which is actually a Russian podcast. And the interviewer translates the entire interview into Russian, hour long, kind of amazing. Um, now the first minute and a bit is in Russian. So just skip past that unless you understand it. And awesome. I have no idea what he said. Um, but the rest of the interview is in the English and we cover just 20 years of space journalism, what kinds of topics I choose how I find my stories and just what perspectives I've had over the last uh, 20 years as I've watched all of these various missions happen and my optimism for the future. So enjoy. Космос. Последний рубеж. Это путешествие подкаста The Big Beard Theory. Его миссия каждый четверг делиться новостями науки и вместе с вами открывать новые горизонты знаний. Смело идти там, где еще не ступала нога человека. Бородатого времени суток, дорогие друзья, вы слушаете 235 выпуск подкаста «Теория большой бороды» и самого научно-космического русскоязычного аудиошоу. Меня, как всегда, зовут Антон Поздняков, и сегодня у нас будет немножко необычный выпуск, потому что это англоязычное интервью с известным космическим журналистом Фрейзером Кейном. Если вы чувствуете себя комфортно в плане англоязычного контента, то сейчас последует оригинальная версия. Если же вы хотите выслушать версию с переводом, пожалуйста, перейдите на соседний эпизод. Он помечен как перевод, как русский, русскоязычный выпуск, и в нем я сделал для вас полный перевод этого интервью. Ну что ж, формальная часть закончена, тогда давайте переходить к самому выпуску. So, uh, hello, As you can probably hear, today is, is an unusual episode. So first of all, yep, you are listening to The Big Beard Theory, and this is episode 235. And to have, I have a very special guest. Uh, it, it is Fraser Kane, uh, who you probably know of. If you are into space and you know English, you probably know Fraser. So hello, Fraser. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, let me just try to introduce you, because you have a lot of stuff going on. So first of all, you're, you're a YouTuber, you're a publisher at Universe Today, so you've been doing it for, I think, 20 years right now, yeah? Yep. And uh, you're also a host of Astronomy Cast, who, you know, um, a lot of people uh, who listen to our podcast and also, as I said, know English, probably heard of. So we're, we're, we're a bit of a colleagues right now. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's, uh, co to be honest, you have co-host of Astronomy Cast, of course. Mm -hmm. We've got Dr. Pamela Gay, my co-host, who is the one with the astronomy degree, and uh, and is really teaching me every um, every episode about space and astronomy. So couldn't do that without her. Okay, uh, and uh, so I'll probably jump to the questions because I, I had some uh, questions collected from our listeners. So I had a little. Uh, introduction of you on Twitter, and I asked people what they want to hear. Uh, and because you're like you've been in the business for 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 over 20 years, so you probably know a lot more about the space industry, about how everything works, than I do, and probably most of our listeners do. So I would say my first question would be: uh, so being a, a publisher, it is like your your job. So do you? I, I think you treat it like a job. Um, so how? Do you keep track of what's going on in the space industry? Because there is so so much information, and it, it's a vast informational field. So, how do you actually cope? Um, you know, being being informed, being on top of everything, and uh, uh, knowing what to report. Well, so 
I have over the decades gathered sources, right? Um, and a lot, I mean, if you get into this industry and start to do a lot of, of reporting, even if you read a lot of stories, you start to see that a lot of websites and newspapers and stuff are all reporting the same story. So you can often trace back that story to the source. And the source will be a university, the source will be NASA, the source will be a journal article, a conference, uh, something someone has posted on Twitter. So a, a lot of the times it's this, it's this process where you where you see a story and you don't know where it came from. And so you trace back the source and then you add that source to your list of sources. And so I use like an RSS reader and, and I have added as many of these sources as I can to RSS. And then I just every day go through all of these different sources. What are all the new press releases coming out from Caltech? What are all the new journal articles that have been posted to the Journal of Astrobiology, uh, et cetera. And, and so by going through that every day, it's like a habit, it's a muscle. You just use it every day. You, you over time see how all the news moves around. And then whenever anybody surprises me with a story, I try to figure out how they found out about it and then add that as my next, as another source. And so now, you know, I, I am, like I said, I'm probably tracking a thousand different places and not all of them are reporting anything every day. Sometimes they don't say something for a month, but, uh, you know, there are definitely several hundred interesting things that cross my desk every day. And then I make decisions based on, on those, on which ones I think are, are important for, for us to report on. Mm -hmm. And being in the business for like 20 years, which is still, it's like a huge number for me. So I'm repeating it over and over. Uh, but anyway, uh, so can you feel that something has changed? Because I feel like everything is evolving so fast because, you know, Twitter is now a major source of information and people make news out of, you know, just one tweet by, by Elon Musk or somebody else. Um, so how this has changed over the years and uh, how do you keep yourself um, on, again, on top, on top of the, the not, not only the information that is posted, but the ways to get this information? Because, you know, how do you know that, you know, your, your way of knowing stuff becomes outdated, something like that. Um, well, uh, like I said, when somebody has something that's interesting that they've done, so if a uh, NASA has done a an interesting photograph of the surface of Jupiter, then they want to get that word out to us as journalists in as many different ways as possible. So they will release a press release they on their website, they will update it on their RSS feed, they will release a picture on Twitter, they'll put it on Instagram, etc. And then we will be tracking, we as journalists will be tracking all of these different sources. And so and so in, in many cases, it's it there's sort of it's like it's all of the old ways still work. And then all of the new ways just add on top of that. The challenge is when you have people who um, have an interesting story to tell, but they're not very good at letting journalists know 
that they have this interesting story to tell. And that's where, where we have to be more, um, we have to dig deeper. And so like, like, again, you will see, like, I'm sure we all heard about this story of, of water vapor found in the atmosphere of a, of an extrasolar planet or last week, huge news. And, and that's because it was, I think it was published in the journal nature. And then all of the different universities that worked on that, published their own news releases about this story. And there was also, because the Hubble Space Telescope was involved, there was a press release on the Hubble website and and the European Space Southern Observatory worked on it too. So you've just got suddenly five different press releases all talking about essentially the same news. So it's really hard to miss that kind of thing. The, the stuff that I like best is the stuff that maybe don't, people don't know about. And and that requires digging, it requires looking at sources that uh, that there isn't going to be a press release that goes along with it. So for, I'll give you some examples. I take a look at all of the journal articles that are published every day. And these are the these are the are the the science articles that are published by scientists for scientists, but they're all freely available. And so someone will publish a, a journal article with a fairly complicated sounding topic about uh, metallicity in type pop three stars in the halo of the, you know, like, like it's, it may sound like it's, it's not very, but there is an actual interesting new piece of, of discovery in science that's in there. And that's where I think my experience comes in is that I, when I read that, I sort of in my mind know the state of the science so far. And so I understand the, the new piece of information that they, that they have discovered. And I can decide whether or not that's an interesting piece of news that we want to report on universe today. So, so, it, you know, the first stage is to really just subscribe to the Twitter feeds and RSS feeds of, of every university, of every uh, space agency, etc., and then start to build your own sources in places where people are going to be talking about really interesting things. And then you can take that reporting a lot deeper. And that's where I think that that's where I think we shine. And that's my favorite part is to find the stories that that I think are really important that maybe are, are being underreported that we can shine light on on a really interesting story. And um, do you find yourself, I, I assume you do, that, uh, you know, in a situation when, where you sort of, um, you know, find a story and uh, it has been misinterpreted several times and, the, you know, people get the wrong impression. Uh, I think that happens to, you know, to SpaceX News a lot and to other stuff, especially, you know, uh, I for some weird reason, Google still thinks that I'm a fan of news that, you know, a huge asteroid is going to hit. Yeah earth next next week or something like that and they even though you know i i always say i'm not interested in stories like that but google still still does that uh, so how often do you find yourselves um um reading stories like that and um, do you think it's it's a bad thing for people because you know it's technically disinformation and um of course being you know being a, a journalist uh 
you should always go and fact check and trace back to the source and you know read the articles and stuff uh so how do you feel about it and do you think we can do something about it well i mean you can't police the entire internet right so my job is to make sure that the work that we do on universe today is scientifically correct and that is the that is like that is the first and most important thing that we do and and we're never going to try to knowingly put something on universe today that is not scientifically correct um and is accurate and as uh, you know with as much fact checking and conversations with the scientists as we as we can do uh with the resources that we have at our disposal um and that's and that's a line that i'm you know i'm never willing to to cross and that's easy right you just you make that as a commitment and you you know after a while all of all of our journalists who work with us you know they understand what is good science and what is and what is bad science and and then of course obviously you want people you want traffic and you want website traffic and you want people to come to your to your site and and to read your stories so you do want to get people excited about about what's going on but i find that that it's more interesting to to be as honest in in what's actually being discovered and to play a bit more of a long game with it right like like you instead of saying trying to freak people out and you know there's this this void and nobody knows what it is and here are the 10 ways that you could die tomorrow right like like that only get that you know clickbait only gets you so far and if you want to be here for decades and you want to build up a following and you want people to trust the work that you do you need to always err on the side of being scientifically accurate and being and and walking away from clickbait so yeah but uh, if we're talking about things like so we're just you know leaning to the extreme side like the the, the definitely clickbaity stuff but uh, what if we talk about like i think i think a good example would be um uh, back when they launched the lhc there was this you know uh, famous thing that you know it, it's gonna build create black holes which is technical and misinterpretation of what the scientist from CERN said mm -hmm. and well so people just misread what what he meant and it was probably a bad analogy but it spread really fast and it became almost like a common knowledge that the LHC can create black holes which is technically not not true at all but so but what about stories like that because they are slightly harder to interpret I think than than the definitely yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and so with those kinds of things, my instinct is to write the is for us to write the 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 explainer to say no. Here's why the Large Hadron Collider isn't going to destroy the world. So um, we, you know, definitely those ones that where there isn't a scientific consensus. You know, there are some some physicists with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge who are concerned about big experiments like that. And with that example, right, you know, the, the reason we know the Large Hadron Collider isn't going to destroy the world is because there are atoms with more energy than LHC can produce colliding with the atmosphere all the time. And so we've got this observational evidence that LHC won't destroy the planet. Um, but if they crank it up to a power that's higher than those 
than than the strongest cosmic rays, then it becomes an open question again. And so then astronomers have looked for, I think, uh, uh, neutron stars exploding as a or white dwarf stars exploding as a uh, you know a lack of white dwarf stars exploding is proof that the you know that that even if you are able to crank up the energies even higher then you won't get a, 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 a collapse of, of planet earth so I think that is fascinating right like like um, when they were doing the the bomb tests back in World War II, someone said, will we light the atmosphere on fire? And they were like, I don't know, maybe, let's find out. And they did some math. And that, and that process of saying, of, of saying like, I wonder if this is possible, that is scientifically fascinating. And so I actually find that kind of a story, the process of trying to figure out if your, if your particle collider is gonna destroy the planet, is a really interesting story, and it's the kind of story that I would love to tell, and I love to, and I do love to tell it. Um, and and so I think that there are ways, angles that you can, you know, you don't need to fear monger, but you can tell the story in a way that gives a lot of information about the underlying science. So so I think that there are tons of really interesting stories across the board with that, even with stories about asteroids coming close to the Earth, right? I mean, yes. At some point, a gigantic asteroid will smash into the Earth and cause an enormous amount of destruction, right? The folks in Russia above Chelyabinsk saw that firsthand, what kind of a shooting gallery we do live in. It, it almost certainly won't happen tomorrow, but it may happen at some point. And so just this idea that it's happened in the past, that it can happen. Where do these asteroids come from? What are they made out of? How do we detect them? How do we detect them at the last minute? These are all fascinating topics and worthy of investigation. Yeah, and I feel like um, a lot of those, you know, stories that, um, you know, something within the range of, you know, a huge asteroid is going to pass within like five million kilometers from, from Earth. Uh, exploits the lack of the frame of reference you know, for the general public. So when you say five million kilometers, well, that that doesn't sound like anything for for the somebody who, from the general public because they don't know is it close, is it not close, is it dangerous, is it not. Uh, so that that's like the problem of education, probably I would say. So you need to teach people yeah. um, to give them the sort of frame of thinking for that. But that's not necessarily my job, right? Like my job is to is to take the science that is being done by scientists and astronauts and astronomers and and to report on it in a way that a a person who hasn't dedicated their life to this field can understand and you know understand what the new science is in a way that doesn't make them have to go into a bunch of math and it's not i don't really necessarily feel like it's my job to battle the people who are trying to scare people. And so like I don't do a lot of debunking flat earthers and planet X hoaxers and stuff. I just, I just don't find that interesting. <laughs> you know, like like our videos, our articles, our podcasts, it's just not for them, right? And and I do f definitely feel like those people are are doing a disservice to the people who are who could be interested in space and astronomy it's sort of taking you know a person who 
is making UFO claims is taking a person who could be excited about the search for for extraterrestrials and the search for for alien life out there in the universe and they're and they're kind of ruining it but all i can do is tell the best most accurate honest stories that we can and hope that they come around over time like when the alien invasion just keeps not happening when planet x just keeps not showing up eventually they'll go oh right there was this website that was saying not to worry and everything was going to be cool. So maybe I'll check them out again. Yeah, and um, talking about the audience, so um, it's it's a bit of a, of a personal question, but which would you prefer? Uh, uh, and probably, you know, maybe there is a percentage balance. So if um, you're talking to space enthusiasts who already know a lot of stuff and you're basically going deeper into the topic, or, um, you know, Communicating to newbies who are who might be interested, who are who have a potential to uh, uh, to be interested in space and science and all that stuff. Um, so how do you how do you find that balance for yourself? Because that's a tricky thing to do, as, as uh, I think. Yeah, I, I I actually think a lot about this. Um, my audience is is actually very specific, and my audience is people who actually know quite a lot about space and astronomy, are quite enthusiastic about it and want to know what's happening right now and what's coming up next in you know what it, and things that maybe they haven't already heard so there's a lot of channels and a lot of websites that talk about really big ideas about terraforming mars and building dyson spheres around stars and stuff and and i think that's interesting and it's sort of fun in your imagination but I'm most interested, and, and I think, you know, and, and as people who read our, my content and people who watch my videos, they're sort of, you know, they have to come along with, they have to follow my curiosity. And I'm most interested in the concrete projects that are happening tomorrow. Uh, the, a 3D printer that's going to space, that's going to build the struts for its solar panels. That's something concrete. And, and I find that, that it, you know, it's this journey. You start out with this just like you've watched Star Trek and you've watched Star Wars and you watch Stargate and you want instant travel between worlds and teleportation and, and you want to meet aliens and all that. And over time, reality catches up with you to the point that you understand, okay, this is what's easy. This is what's hard. These are the technologies that are advancing. These are the new, this, these are the very limits of what we can do today. And I'm most interested in talking about how we're pushing those limits bit by bit in all the different directions that we are, as opposed to really sort of dramatic, almost science fiction ideas. So it's a very fine line, you know, I'm constantly sort of talking about what is the cutting edge of space and astronomy. And I like to stay right there. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of the complexity of the content you're producing. So uh, do you sometimes feel that you need to, you know, tone yourself down and maybe do a little simpler explanation? Because you might think that, you know, okay, maybe somebody who's not very familiar with, with the topic might be, you know, either listening and watching or reading. So how often do you find yourself re reading through what, what you've wrote or what you have basically shot on video and thinking, okay, maybe, maybe it sh should be a little bit simpler or something like that? Uh, never. 
<laughs> I that, that um, might be you know the experience that you have based on that. So you you might do that from the first yeah. Try. Well, but I mean maybe yeah yeah. But I you know like I aim for a certain kind of tone. I definitely don't want to talk down to the people who are watching and listening and reading. I want to assume a certain amount of just general enthusiasm and knowledge. I mean, they wouldn't be watching these videos if they weren't excited about this kind of stuff um, or reading our articles. So I, I, I assume a certain amount of just knowledge, but then if there's a very, but then I will try to very quickly tell, try to bring people up to speed on on what is the the state of our knowledge about fast radio bursts or storms on Saturn or whatever. And then I will try to present whatever is the new piece of news. Um, I think that, uh, and, and it's not gonna be for everybody. Right? There's, there's plenty of people who watch my material and they say, oh, you know, this is too dumbed down. Um, then, then you're like, okay, this isn't for you. And there's other people who are like, that went over my head. And like, again, like this isn't for you, right? Uh, the people that I really like, or are the are the ones who it's just it's a, right it's right in the habitable zone for them. It's in the perfect spot where where they already have a lot of understanding about this area, and then they learned a bunch of new things from what I was able to provide, right? And and that's my favorite kind of feedback is where someone goes like, I thought I knew everything about that. And then I learned a bunch of new things. And I'm like, okay, perfect. That's me doing my job exactly right. So, but I find that you can never, you can never go wrong having a lot of faith in your audience to understand complicated topics, right? People are smart, they'll get it. Um, your job is to, your job is to, help them with your enthusiasm, understand what's really exciting and, and, and they'll get up to speed. And if they need more information, they'll find other sources to try and fill in the missing pieces. I mean, the internet is amazing. So yeah, yeah. Um, and having, having faith is your in your audience is probably um, something that uh, everybody should should, you know, try a little bit more of uh, as Well, I'm I'm talking from my point of view because a lot of people who are know who are trying to explain complex stuff, they often underestimate their their audience, and that that's yeah. something that probably shouldn't be done. Um, so, going further to to some some more specific stuff about space, because we're, we've been talking about journalism. Uh, but on your on your YouTube channel, to be honest, my favorite section is is the Q and A when people ask all sorts of fantastic questions sometimes <laughs> you know they're not that interesting but you know having the input from from people and that, that gives you like a broader image uh so do you have any any sort of preferences i mean maybe there are some questions that you really like or maybe there is a type of questions you really like or maybe on the contrary some of them you know you get so often that you hate them a lot uh so any any insights on that Uh, well, I like the questions where I didn't know the answer by when I first read the question, mm -hmm. right? Those are my favorites. So the favorites are where I go like, I don't know. Um, that's a great question. Let me look into that. Uh, um, we just recorded our 100th question show and someone asked a question said, are there any ideas to search for gravitational waves that isn't using a laser interferometer like LIGO or LISA or Virgo, you know, all the missions that are all of the various uh, observatories that are currently being used. And I didn't know, right? And so I was able to investigate and find out 
that there are other methods that people have proposed to detect gravitational waves, which was really fascinating. So those are my favorite questions. And, and fortunately, people keep asking questions that I don't necessarily know the answer to. And so I get to go on this quick journey of like, I get to solve my curiosity because now I want to know, right? Someone asks the question, I don't know the answer. I want to know the answer. And then that process of me finding out the answer, I then get to share the answer. So that's my, that's got to be my favorite questions. I mean, when I try as best I can to make every question that I answer on the question shows different than any question that I've ever answered before. And, you know, with 100 question shows, you know, we're well over a 1000 questions total so far. Um, my hope is, is that as many of the questions as possible are new. But and part of it is like you can see the audience as we've been doing this more, their questions are getting more nuanced. They're asking very specific parts about the terraforming of Mars or the gravity of Jupiter or whatever. And so it's this sort of growing understanding from the audience that is then pushing me to dig deeper into what I know and what I don't know. So as a creator, as a communicator, this process has been probably one of the most useful things that I could have done. Like it's one thing to sit down and write a story. It's another thing to off the top of your head for half an hour, try to be accurate and explain things when you don't know how you're going to explain them in advance, right? Like, I don't do any preparation for the question shows. There's no script. Um, I might grab a couple of numbers and write them down on the on the paper, just to make sure I've got my my numbers correct. But apart from that, it's all off the top of my head. And so it's as a as a creator as a as a communicator, it is by far the most valuable thing that I've done just to me to get better at what I do. And I highly recommend anybody who wants to just become a better science communicator or communicator in general, just keep throwing yourself to do this stuff in public as much as humanly possible. It's very powerful. Yeah, and um, I've, I've been doing a similar thing on, on the podcast as well uh, for, for quite a while right now. And I can definitely approve that having questions that you don't know the answer to and you have to do your own research and that pushes your own curiosity to, to a new limit, especially when somebody asks a question that you might not have uh, asked yourself. You're thinking, oh, that, that might be interesting. So I'm, I'm going to dig into that. And uh, <laughs> one of the things I have to keep myself um, is that... Uh, um, you have to keep yourself from doing a separate episode on, on every single question that you get. <laughs> so that, that's. Uh, but, but are there any any you know any questions that keep coming up that just you know that you just simply hate <laughs> because you know they? Uh, I, I assume you get a lot of them and you have to you know to um, pick the ones that go into the show. So are, are there any any uh, questions that give you some sort of negative feelings about them? Well, no, I mean, like, I mean, part of it is like, this is my job, right? And so like, if a person who works in a restaurant, and cooks, you know, is is the chef of a restaurant and is making recipes for the people who are coming to their restaurant, it's important to like to cook, I think. And, and for me, my job is to 
communicate science and to help people understand more about the universe around them. So, so I actually don't hate the questions. Um, I, I like, I can't think of any questions that I hate. What happens is I get very similar flavors of the same question again and again and again. And all that does is that tells me that I need to make an episode about that topic. And the one that I think is best example is, is I get questions about Lagrange points all the time. Like so many people want to understand how the Lagrange points work because it's, it's this amazing concept, these stable spots in space that you can park a spacecraft at. And so I just finally broke down and made a three part episodes, you know, series about Lagrange points so that I could just try to answer all of those questions in one place. And then when people ask a question that I've addressed, I just go, here's a video that I made that covers this exact question. And I've done that about, you know, people always want to know about how to get a better, can you build an artificial magnetosphere to protect astronauts? And people want to know about artificial gravity and people want to know how to fix the atmosphere on Mars. And so a lot of the times when those questions come up more than a couple of times, I recognize that there's a theme here. And then I make a video that is for the other for the other series that I do these guide to space videos. That is the explainer on that topic. And from that point on, I can say, here's a video we did. Here's a video we did. And I'm happy to do it. If you look through my comments, you know, it's like, here's a video we did <laughs> and it, as a response to their question. And so I don't mind at all. It's it's like, that's just more data for me to to do more videos. Yeah, but another, another example I can think of of you know recurring question is something about do actually black holes suck everything around them and do they like act as giant vacuum cleaners? And it, I, I was well use this example if you replace the sun with a with a black hole with say mass and all that stuff that you know nothing re would really change. Uh, yeah. It's just a lot of misconceptions that are common for for a lot of people and they yeah. keep coming up. But um, I'm gonna come back to the 20 years thing right again, and uh, <laughs> it's just being in the business for for such a long time uh, it requires you know maintaining of your own interest because I believe that if you if you are doing something and you want to do it well, you have to enjoy it yourself. So, what are the most enjoyable things about um, talking about space and communicating science and uh, um, answering questions. So what, what are the things that drive you uh, every day, uh, which is a bit of a cliche, but still, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it, it's funny, uh, like the purpose of universe today, like when a person like I'm a publisher, I run a company, right? It's a corporation, uh, universe today productions, Inc. And the purpose of universe today is to make Fraser happy, to communicate space and astronomy, but also to, to make me happy. And I don't, I don't, I'm not really concerned about the profit, right? I'm not concerned about the scale. I'm not concerned about the number of employees. It's mostly just, am I working on things that I enjoy or am I not? And if I'm not, then I don't. And I, and I just don't do that. And so a lot of times, like uh, a lot of people sort of bring on sponsors into their videos. And I just know that I just wouldn't enjoy that. And so I just don't. <laughs> so I think that um, that it's really, really important 
to, you know, we all have one life to live and we all have to figure out how we're going to live this life. And, and you want to do as many things as possible in your life that bring you joy, that make, that give you a closer connection with the people around you, that allow you to think about, about ideas and work on projects that, that make you happy. And, and if you think about the fact that, you know, again, like I, I always planned to be doing this for 20 years. In fact, I wrote a plan uh, 20 years ago that that describes what I was going to be doing for the next uh, 50 years when I moved into this this career. Um, and I'm right on schedule <laughs> in what I want to do. Um, and and I think that that for anyone who wants to get into this career, it's very rewarding if you enjoy this. Uh, if you enjoy this work. And so when you think about what I get to do on a day by day basis, right, I get to talk to people who are working on things that I find really fascinating that that I get to explore my curiosity, I get to then communicate and there's something like there's something about me, like, I don't know whether there's something wrong with me, but I just can't help but try to explain things to people, right? Um, and I really, and so I need to channel that in, in ways where people want to receive that information as opposed to my poor friends and family who were like, yeah, we get it, Fraser. That's, this is the best way to, you know, um, I don't know, drive an electric car or, or do your, I don't know, garden or whatever, right? Um, uh, I, I can be insufferable, I think. And so I think with, with this, it gives me an outlet to do this thing that I really enjoy. And it is absolutely my natural instinct is to try to create joy and curiosity in other people. And no matter what I do, this would be my number one uh, task. So I'm really glad I was able to find a, a career that lets me do this. Yeah, but have you ever found yourself in a position where you thought that, uh, you know, space stuff is becoming a little bit boring? The reason I'm asking that uh, is that another podcast that I'm co-hosting is about IT, and so it usually talks about gadgets and stuff, and there is a tendency across the industries that, that this whole stuff is has reached a plateau and becomes a little bit boring. But um, so have you ever found yourself um, feeling in a similar way about, you know, space exploration and stuff? No. Well, okay. So I think that, you know, there is this risk if you choose a topic that you want to get into where you're going to communicate that you will get tired of the topic that that by doing it professionally, you will wear out your enthusiasm for the topic. And I have, I was I think I was really lucky with the topic that I chose at the time that I chose it right I mean I could have been I could have absolutely done stuff about video games I could have done stuff about uh, mountain biking I could have done stuff about I don't, who knows right I think communicating and being a publisher is the is the thing that I am is the job that I do it happens to be about space and astronomy because that was one of the things that I was most excited about. But I was really fortunate, and I think you're exactly right, that that the topic that I chose is one that is constantly growing, that is that is going faster and faster and faster with both all of the amazing things that are happening from the new 
from rockets, but also all the discoveries that are being made, both by space telescopes and ground observatories, so, and as well as all the advances that are just happening in, in amateur astronomy. So, so I think that if I had gone into, say, d done a thing on IT, like, you know, my, my degree is in computer science, I would have, if I had just done straight up IT, like, here's the new phone, <laughs> you know, here's the Samsung phone, here's how it's different, that would, that would have gotten boring. But then I think, okay, well, then what I would have probably done is gone and looked right to the cutting edge of information technology, right? What are the what are the new algorithms? What are the journal articles? What are the new discoveries in artificial intelligence and machine learning? Like I would, I think no matter what I picked, I would end up in exactly the same spot, which is that is that I love to see I love to to see people answer questions about the world around them and try to figure out new ways to do things. And that is the thing that I'm most fascinated by. And I could I could watch I could watch that all day and and talk about it all day. So it brings those two things together. I want to learn about new discoveries and I can't help but share my enthusiasm about those new discoveries with other people. Yeah, and um, having this perspective over the the 20 years of uh, history of the space industry, did you feel at any point the thing that I call the Elon Musk effect when SpaceX got into the game and it's it's generating articles and informational stuff all, all it, everything SpaceX do they explode into general public not only in the into the audience that are you know deeply interested into space so did you did you feel that effect uh, is it is it real and if, if it is then what's the scale of it so are we living in a in a in a time when uh, space exploration and rocket uh, stuff is getting more and more exciting for more and more people. It definitely um, feels like it's opened up excitement and interest in space exploration for a new audience. And you can definitely see the number of people who are subscribed to Elon Musk. Um, and there are some channels, some YouTube channels like Tim Dodd, The Everyday Astronaut, and, and a bunch of others who are doing fantastic work reporting on those advances and they are just jumping up in in traffic uh so clearly there's value there to 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 report on this i personally am a lot more reserved about it and so i mean we absolutely discuss the many of these discoveries and the big uh pushes that are happening but like i think i've done one spacex related video in the last year about starlink and then i think previous to that i did a video about the about the starship but back then it was called the uh, you know the bfr so i probably do one pure spacex video maybe a year well other people are doing one a week so uh and that's just like I think there's so many other interesting things that are that are happening. SpaceX is one part of the puzzle, and the rise of reusable rocketry is is a total game changer. But I try to be a little more balanced about about what what I'm talking about and, and the stories that I'm most interested in. But I mean, did it actually bring? So if you look back at the industry, so do you think it is actively growing right now? The whole audience of people who might be interested in space is getting inflated in in, in, a, in a certain sense yeah i mean i i don't have any numbers right so 
um, whenever we do SpaceX articles, they do well. Um, but, uh, and if I wanted to do better, I would do more, but I just can't bring myself to do more. So I don't bother again, back to the, you know, sort of following my curiosity. Um, so, but I mean, you know, my instinct is yes, that there are tens of thousands of people who are watching a SpaceX launch live. This is, this is the, the this is the level of excitement and pop, popular enthusiasm that was happening during the moon landings, during Sputnik, right? This is, uh, this is a dramatic shift in the future of humanity and we're watching it unfold in real time and it is hard not to be incredibly excited about it um and then this is going to inspire a generation of engineers and scientists and astronomers and astronauts to to go into this field and this is how it starts right people watch a launch live and they go huh maybe i want to be a mechanical engineer and then they take mechanical engineering at their university and then they go and look for a job and they end up at SpaceX or Blue Origin or some of the hundreds of other smaller companies that are that are doing this work. So um, it definitely feels different than any other time in the history that I've been doing this. Um, and it's really exciting to watch it happen. Okay, uh, as we're wrapping up this episode, so I have just a couple more questions. Um, a little bit of a concern that I have, I personally have, is that we are currently living in a very interesting time when we had um, those big space missions, space exploration missions like the Cassini mission, the New Horizons, and um, it seems like the big missions are, are getting gone and uh, there is nothing to replace them really because you know this whole thing takes time so i mean in the next five ten seven ten years there won't be anything of that scale um so we're not visiting you know the the gas giants anymore in you know in, in the next five years or so um so do you feel that it's gonna bring the the whole industry a little bit down um not in terms of you know the the industry is as uh, you know are there going to be less missions or something but the the interest might drop because we're not getting the the nice pictures that attract a lot of people and um, you know smaller missions are not that exciting no way not at all um there is a constant stream of missions going up there are already on route are in the planning stages right now uh, that there is going to be nonstop coverage for decades, from what I can tell, right? Like, like right now, uh, NASA is working on the Mars 2020 rover, um, which launches next year. Uh, at the same time, the European Space Agency is working on their version, their ExoMars mission, the Rosalind Franklin rover, which is also going in 2020. Um, the, there's a mission that's Lucy in 2021 is going to be going to out to the uh, the Trojan asteroids to see uh, six different asteroids over the course of its mission. The Parker Solar Probe is on its way to get closer and closer to the sun. Bepi Colombo is going to be going to Mercury. ESA is launching, I think, three planet hunting space telescopes 
in the 2020s. There's four monster ground-based observatories coming up. One, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope in 2021, the Extremely Large Telescope in 2025, the Magellan Telescope in 2026, um, and then the 30-meter telescope you know, could be 2028. So there's James Webb, there's W first, uh, there's going to be the Titan Dragonfly, there's going to be a helicopter drone on Titan. There's the Europa Clipper, the European Space Agency is sending the juice mission, which is a different mission to to travel to three of Jupiter's moons. I can do this all day. So, so there are many, many missions in the works both in the planning as well as in the implementation as well as en route to their targets right now and people don't really know about them until the pictures start to arrive right we saw those great pictures from rosetta well i remember when rosetta launched and then it took 10 years to get there i remember when new horizons launched and took 10 years to get to pluto so no uh it is, it is as exciting now as it's ever been. We're not gonna see those gigantic missions, but we don't need them anymore. That's what's amazing, is that you've got miniaturization of technology, you've got smaller rockets that are less expensive, that are able to send missions to various places at a fraction of the price that they used to. So instead of sending a, you know, a two-ton satellite to Mars, you're going to see CubeSats go to Mars that can still do many of the same kinds of observations and, and science work that it took before. So, so no, I'm, I'm more excited now by the kinds of missions that are off, that are in the works and coming up than I've been at any point, right? So, nope, sorry, totally disagree. Okay, and just one final question that I have. Again, the thing that bother, bothers me a bit is that when we think of the next milestone in space exploration, in human space exploration, most people talk about Mars and, you know, that there is this whole notion of terraforming Mars and making that our next place to live. But um, the thing I, I'm, I always think of is that why, why are we looking past Venus? <laughs> why, why Venus isn't as much of a, um, of a focus? Because... If you think about it, well, it has much closer mass to Earth, which means that you know we don't when we're when we actually think about terraforming stuff. Why people think that creating an atmosphere from scratch is easier than changing the what that that's already there. So um, that, that that's just maybe it's just me, but but yeah. I feel like no, no, I I agree that that Venus is like the most Earth-like planet. Um, in the solar system, that it has the same kind of gravity, the same mass as the Earth does. Um, but like this is, and I think this is part of that journey that we talked about a little bit earlier, right? When a person first stumbles into being excited about space and astronomy, it's these big, crazy, ambitious ideas about like, you know, let's fix Venus. Let's terraform Mars. Let's build a Dyson sphere. Where's our rotating O'Neill cylinders that we can live in in artificial gravity as we orbit in the L4 point around this, the, the sun? But the reality is, is that space is hard and we can barely get off of the 
gravity well that we live on, that we can keep a human being alive on the International Space Station for a year, um, that, that, that we are making these tiny steps into, into space. And it's going to be a long, long time. It's fun. To, I, I love to think about these things in my mind, um, you know, to imagine what it what that future might look like. But 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 then what are the practical steps that are being taken to get us there? Right? Instead of trying to terraform Venus, there are some really interesting um, electronics that that have been developed that that can handle really high pressures and temperatures and it might be possible to send a rover to Venus to that could last longer than the poor Soviet era probes that died screaming within 20 minutes down on the surface of Venus like what if you could have a rover crawl around the surface of Venus for for several weeks and try to see if there was ever water on the surface of Venus and try to understand the history. What about sending a spacecraft to Venus to take some samples from its upper atmosphere uh, to see what it's made of today? And maybe you could even try to find life floating around in the upper atmosphere. So, so I think that that it's those, you know, it's that journey, right, that those big ideas get people really excited and, and get into this field. But then it's these incremental changes over time that I think keep us entertained day in day out week after week, month after month as we watch, you know, what I don't want as a person to go, I'm really excited about this. Let's terraform Venus. How come we haven't terraformed Venus? I'm bored. Um, I'm going to watch someone play Fortnite. I want somebody to, you know, I want someone to say, I'm really excited about terraforming Venus. Oh, it's really hard to terraform Venus. Uh, but this is really interesting about more durable electronics. Oh, what are some other missions that people are working on? And, and that's where the journey goes, because those advances are exciting, and they are happening all the time, relentlessly. And, and once you sort of understand the challenges and the technology and the the state of things and how quickly things are moving, you get this new sense of enthusiasm and excitement and adventure for what for what is really happening, that your sort of sense of what's possible starts to get closer and closer to what's really happening. And that's when I find it's the real magic. So yeah, absolutely. Let's put a let's put a gigantic uh, silvered uh, umbrella out at the Venus L1 Lagrange point. Let's block all the lights about four times as big as the as the size of Venus. Let's block all the light from the sun to cool Venus down to uh, the temperature of space, make the carbon dioxide sublimate out. Let's drop hundreds, possibly thousands of carbonaceous asteroids made of lime uh, with containing magnesium and calcium to lock away all of that carbon dioxide and uh, and then slowly warm up the planet. Let's introduce, let's, let's bring comets to smash into the planet, introduce water, thicken the atmosphere uh, and make the place livable. And and uh, I, I will gladly meet you on Venus, um, where we'll sit beside the the Venusian ocean and uh, and drink uh, margaritas and and pat each other on the back for a job well done. Yeah, and I, I think I personally find the, the most inspiring when talking about you know even future missions is looking back 
uh, at what we've already achieved as as um, humanity, <laughs> you would say so, as as a um, kind. And uh, understanding yeah. that it's been only basically 60 years of uh, space exploration. Um, so we've we've launched the yeah. first the first thing into space, yeah. which is you know barely touching the. Uh, if, if you look back at at the um, the picture to scale of. Uh, Um, you know our solar system, which is you know I, again, another thing that I really love is it's one of my favorite. I think it's called if if moon was one pixel, and it shows you like the the, the entire scale of of our solar system and how small have is is our reach that you know that uh, the International Space Station is barely you know off off the ground from from the Earth. Uh, so I I, I find that. Uh, incredibly inspiring and uh, that, that 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 we've achieved all that stuff and we know all that stuff about our own solar system and uh, the universe around us and we've done that in literally you know less than a lifetime yeah people are impatient uh star trek told us what should be possible but star trek is a tv show and it's science fiction um and it the reality is is taking as long as it takes And the journey is fascinating if you pay attention and you watch it. Okay, then I think it's it's a great point to wrap up this episode. And uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, if you guys want to follow Fraser and maybe have some questions for him, uh, you can uh, follow him on Twitter. You can subscribe to his YouTube channel. Uh, you can read Universe Today and all the links are going to be in the show notes. So please do that. And again, Fraser, thank you so much for, for having you today. Uh, again, it was an absolute joy. Thanks for having me, Anton. Что ж, вот таким у нас получилось интервью с Фрейзером Кейном. Если вам понравился такой формат, когда мы приглашаем кого-нибудь англоязычного и говорим с ним о какой-нибудь интересной теме, обязательно напишите об этом в комментариях, напишите о том, что вообще думаете о таких выпусках. Конечно же, не забывайте, что вы можете поддержать теорию Большой Бороды на сервисе patreon.com slash berticast, там выбрать тир, который относится к теории Большой Бороды. Отдельное спасибо всем тем, кто подписан на максимальную подписку Berticast+. А именно это слушайте Алексей Верхованцев, Алексей Панфилов, Андрей Гириатович, Богдан Пришетько, Владислав Михалев, Денис, Дмитрий Хлан, Дмитро Лапа, Иван Рубановский, Липфиц, Мишин Егор, Мэтью Малахов, Александр Чайковский, Александр Фищенко, Сергей Бондаренко, Владимир Агафонов и Владимир Ходаков. Если вы хотите присоединиться к этим людям, подписывайтесь на Бердикаст Плюс. Также вы можете помочь теории Большой Бороды банально, пройдя в приложение Apple Podcasts, поставив там нужное количество звездочек, а еще лучше написав отзыв, это крепко поможет подкасту стать еще выше в рейтингах и быть доступным большему количеству людей. На этом я с вами окончательно прощаюсь. До следующего четверга. Да прибудет с вами сила. Пока-пока.